Hey there, everyone. Sorry about my um, slightly gravelly voice and sniffly nose. I've only gone and caught the Rona, haven't I? I've had it about a week now. I think I'm coming out of it, though. I've got anosmia, which is pretty miz, but, you know, I'm sure I'll soldier through. Because this stuff knows, though, I'm not going to talk too much before this podcast episode gets going. Except to say, hey, there's only about a week to go before my book, A Dark History of Sugar, is published by Pen and Sword History. So there's a week or so to get a pre-order in from the Pen and Sword website and get 25% off. I'll leave a link in the show notes. And whilst I'm talking about show notes... Everything me and my guest today talks about will be popped in the show notes. I've got more news to tell you, but not everyone's interested in that sort of thing, so I'll save it till the end. Instead, let's introduce today's guest. Today, I talk with Emeritus Professor Peter J. Atkins. Peter is a food historian and historical geographer with over 50 years of research experience, and his specialisation has been in perishable foods, such as dairy products and he's now writing a book on the history of British cheese. He hasn't just focused on British cheese and British food history, he's also worked on the dairy systems in South Asia, and a more general food history with colleagues in Europe. He is a past president of the International Commission of Research on European Food History. I'll leave the link to those in the show notes if you're interested in following those up. They've published several books now, including last year, called Food History, A Feast of the Senses in Europe. 1750 to the present, which is really where I kind of read about Peter's work on the history of cheese and the cheese industry. He's also worked on the spread of disease through food, especially bovine TB in milk, which we touch on a little bit. We touch on a few of the things brought up in Peter's books in today's chat, so I've left the titles and links in the show notes there for you. Today, we talk about Britain's cheese industry and we go as far back as the Roman occupation. We look at the Middle Ages, including the Anglo-Saxons. And we ask the questions, you know, what was cheese like before there was a proper industry? Is it anything like the cheeses we can buy today? We also look at the importance of women and girls in Britain's cheese and dairy industry. But we focus on cheddar, of course. Cheddar's kind of taken over the world, and it became so dominant in Britain that it almost made country-made artisan cheeses completely extinct. But luckily for us, all that kind of cheese is having a comeback, and we have a little look at the series of events that's brought us back from the brink. Because traditional cheese is having a comeback, I'm adding some cheese recipes on the blog, including a liquid toast cheese recipe and a cheese ice cream. But again, I'll say more about those at the end. But there we go, my chat with Professor Peter J. Atkins, Cheddar and the Cheese Industry. Hello, Peter. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's very nice to meet you. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a, it's a great pleasure to talk to anyone who's interested in food history. We're going to talk about Cheddar and the Cheese Industry. Before that, let's have a chat about you. Um, who are you and what do you do? I'm Peter Atkins. I uh, retired from Durham University from the geography department there and um, I've always been interested in, in food history in one guise or another. So this all started about 50 years ago which is quite a thought <laughs> when you reflect on it but I'm in retirement now for I suppose five or six years something like that. But I'm, I'm carrying on with my researches because that's what I enjoy doing. Yes, it's just fun, isn't it? That's the problem. So I've, I've done various different things over the years, uh, including being involved with European food historians. One thing you may not be aware of is that food history really doesn't have that much de academic depth. 
really in this country, at least not until the last 20 or 30 years. So I was um, singing on my own, really, for quite a while, uh, going back to the 1970s or 80s. There wasn't really, there weren't that many people who <laughs> were interested. Well, no, indeed. In fact, I was going to ask, how, how, how does one even become a academic food historian? Oh, right. Okay, we're going even further back in that case. <laughs> <laughs> I was an undergraduate uh, from 68 to 71, and then I had to make up my mind what, what I was going to do for my PhD. And, uh, you know, I read a number of different articles that seemed interesting. And one of them was on milk. I, I looked around, you know, in the literature and, and uh, there wasn't really that much written on milk. So I thought, OK, I'll do that for my PhD. And it was on the, the, the London milk trade from the 18th century to mm -hmm. the 19th century. And it's developed since then. So what I found was that it was um, interesting to talk to people in Europe because they, they take food and food history seriously indeed boy do they take it seriously i mean in france for instance by comparison with here if if i looked at the literature on cheese history there is so much to to work with it's it's all in french of course but um it's fascinating stuff they, i would think they've probably written 10 times as much as as british authors on, right. on food historical topics and it's, it's really high quality stuff as well and we could say the same for Italy, Spain, a number of different countries over there. Yeah, they, I mean, obviously they take their food seriously now, you know, currently. So if you go for a, a meal, it's, um, it's so, so wonderful to eat the cheese in, in France. They've got uh, hundreds of different varieties. Mm -hmm. Who was it, uh, de Gaulle, who said that, uh, how am I expected to run a country which has 250 cheeses? Uh, the implication being that people were independently minded and had a, a lot of different recipes, you know, so they weren't necessarily all, all worried about what the French government were thinking. <laughs> and of course, that's ne never been the case in, in Britain. We have a relatively small number of cheeses, or did anyway, until the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, it was just a number of territorials. Yeah, well, um, I was going to ask, because we'll be talking about the cheese industry and cheddar in particular, but there was a time before there was such a thing as cheddar. Um, I mean, how far can we go back when we look at uh, the, well, cheese industry in inverted commas? Can we go far as back as Anglo-Saxon and medieval? You could go back as far as the Romans, I suppose, really, mm -hmm. because of course, the yes. Roman army needed to be fed. Uh, any army marches on its stomach, according to Napoleon. Mm -hmm. And... Um, uh, yeah, the, the Romans were certainly interested in cheese because it was one of those commodities that could be moved as the soldiers marched from one place to another. The archaeologists have found what they call uh, cheese presses, which oh, okay. are, are sort of pottery vessels with holes pierced in them to allow the whey to drain out. I see. They're not cheese presses in the sense that you'd, you'd recognise these days. They were just small vessels. So the, the Romans were just making small cheeses and probably they would be something like um, feta. Ah, you know, okay. That, that Greek cheese that's made out of sheep's milk. Mm -hmm. So light, only very lightly pressed and wouldn't keep for that long, actually. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, it was, I'm sure it was very helpful for what they wanted to do. But the, then when the Romans left in the 5th century, the, and the Anglo-Saxons came and various other groups. Uh, they swept away the, the food culture that the, the Romans had, uh, had left mm -hmm. and started something new. So 
we don't have so much evidence archaeologically of what was happening in cheese making. What we think from the liter uh, literature of, of the day uh, is that they were making soft cheese. So Alcuin, who was the, uh, the famous scholar of the 8th century, who was a Northumbrian actually, came from close to where I'm speaking from here in Durham, a bit further north. In, uh, it was a hotbed of knowledge, though, wasn't it? Oh, that part of the country. Oh, yeah, sure. At the time. Yeah. Mm. Venerable Bede and, and so Indeed. forth. Yeah, on on side, you're absolutely right. But yeah. Alcuin came from a bit further north near Berwick. But then he ended up as a scholar uh, in the court of Charlemagne. Ah, okay. Uh, the, very, the very famous uh, emperor of uh, France and, and quite a wide area, actually. Mm -hmm. So Alcuin was, was the chief scholar of the day, really. But he kept his Northumbrian uh, food habits when he went to Charlemagne's court, and he, he continued to eat um, what you might call curd cheese, which is a sort of fresh cheese, yeah. uh, which doesn't keep him more than a few days. But he, he was there were jokes made about him at the time uh, of him eating this, this sort of very humble diet. So we think that the Anglo-Saxons more generally probably were eating that, that kind of cheese. It's true that their taxes were partly in cheese, and they also traded in cheese with France as well. But my my take on it is it was, it was pretty much all soft cheese. And I guess it was small scale, most of the time people making cheese for themselves, or, or at least for the household, I suppose, if it's a large so Self-sufficiency probably yeah. was the order of the day, I think you're right. And what we need to remember was that it was mainly sheep's cheese, not, not really cow's cheese. It's quite a thought, isn't it? That was that would have been the case right through until the Middle Ages, late Middle Ages, probably sheep, and to a certain extent goat's cheese as well. Cattle only only a bit later. Well, one thing one thing that we 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 know about it is that places were named after cheese making. So oh, the, yeah. the Anglo-Saxon place named Wick, which particularly in East Anglia on the coast in Essex and Suffolk. Was associated with cheese making. So if you look in Doomsday Book, mm -hmm. 1086, um, not really much of a mention of cheese apart from these these wicks on the coast in East Anglia. So we think actually when the the, the Normans came uh, from 1066 onwards, they they really weren't so bothered about cheese, um, and cheese making became less significant in the early Middle Ages. It wasn't really until, what should we say, 16th century mm -hmm. that you could, uh, you use the term industry, that you could say there was something on a large scale in terms yeah. of cheese making. Um, and by then it probably would have switched over to cattle. So the sheep were, were now being used for their wool because the woolen industry was a, a big thing in medieval England. Yes, yes. So not so much in, in terms of sheep's cheese. The cattle were no longer being used to pull the plough that would have been more um, for horses as they, they spread throughout the, the country. So now ah, the cattle are used increasingly for dairy. Is there something specific about um, cow's milk that makes it especially good for cheese? The reason I ask is I, I just uh, read the other day, or actually the other month, now I think about it, all the other milks come out homogenised, except for cows. You just like they sit there and you get a layer of cream if you let a any other mammals milks it there it doesn't separate out is that something that put it ahead of all the other milks as a versatile ingredient it was it was certainly versatile in, in that uh, sense but also it was probably a bit kinder on the palate as well because i don't know how much sheep's cheese you've eaten or goat's cheese for that matter but 
it tends to be much um, tartar on the tongue. Yeah, it's a love or hate thing, isn't it? For sure. <laughs> it's got quite a taste to it. Maybe an acquired taste, and it's maybe not for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, if you go over to the continent, they're, they're much keener on it. But you, you talked about cheddar earlier on. We don't come across cheddar really until the early 17th century. 1635 is the, the date which is usually mentioned. I think probably a bit earlier than that. Okay. But we, we have um, evidence of other cheeses that were around in the 16th century. Mm-hmm. Soft cheeses, for instance. These days, we don't seem to have much in the way of soft cheese, which is British in inverted commas. But um, <laughs> it, was, uh, it, it was extremely popular in, in the late medieval, early modern period. So Bath, York, place called, a village called Cottenham, which is near Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, Colwick, which is in Nottinghamshire. So, yeah, a lot of soft cheese around. And cheddar, which obviously is a hard-pressed cheese, not mm-hmm. until the early 17th century. So the cheeses that we were eating, I guess I guess it's the century of the Tudors, I suppose, is where we're, we're talking about just before cheddar comes yeah. in. So there's a huge yeah. amount of variety. What, what, what kind of um, taste, smells, textures? It's a real melting pot, as it were, <laughs> of cheeses. Very difficult to say, isn't it, what, what it would have been like? Mm. because you uh, obviously you can't dig up any cheese <laughs> well no so, indeed I, I mean I guess it's quite difficult to find recipes I mean I look at a lot yes. of historical cookbooks but this is a, a job yeah. left to the dairy maid who's probably illiterate but highly skilled and so it's a bit of a, a gap in our knowledge I assume it's a key aspect of feminist history isn't it really mm-hmm. there have been various articles written on this but I, I think um, there's a book that's waiting to be written on on uh, the, uh, the part played by, by women and girls in, in cheese making right up until the 19th century. The men took the credit for it, of course, as they usually do. Natch. But it was the, the women who had the true skills. They knew what to do. But uh, yes, you're right. It would have been a huge variety of different sorts of textures, tastes and what have you. So I, I divide uh, it into three periods, really. Mm-hmm. One is the, uh, the early period. So we have, uh, I mentioned the East Anglian cheeses earlier on, Suffolk, Essex. There's also Cheshire, which would have been one of the earliest cheeses around and then became extremely popular right through into the middle of the 19th century. And and why it declined later on in the 19th century is a little story in its own right. And also another one which has completely disappeared called Banbury. Banbury cheese was mentioned over and over again in Shakespeare and various other writers around in the... the Oh, okay. Yeah, so Banbury was is a place in Oxfordshire, uh-huh. and Banbury cheese was um, a thin cheese, and lots of jokes were made about it being very thin by comparison with the, um, well, later on, the, the cheddar was a huge cheese, actually. It was made cooperatively because the, the farmers maybe only had one cow, and uh, you'd have to wait for days and days if you were to make a cheese out of it. So if you wanted cheese made out of fresh milk mm-hmm. you had to go to your neighbor and maybe several neighbors together got together and 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 then made one big cheese and so cheddar cheeses were anything from 20 to 120 pounds in weight wow. so up to 100 weight they became extremely popular because of the quality of the cheese but they were they were expensive do you think the early cheddar cheese is something we would recognize today as a cheddar cheese no, I think re- really the recipes have changed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes, yes. Actually, I've got a recipe from the, the late 17th century from the Royal Society, 
mm -hmm. for Cheshire cheese. That's probably one of the earliest detailed recipes we've got. Somebody wrote in from Cheshire uh, because the Royal Society was one of the earliest scientific bodies and they were very interested in anything to do with chemistry. And when you think about it, making cheese is a kind of food chemistry. So this, this guy came up with a, a recipe. We don't have any, anything equivalent for, for cheddar until late, later on, much later mm -hmm. on. But anyway, I was just talking earlier about the, um, the first phase was Suffolk, Essex, Cheshire and Banbury. The second phase was the 18th century. That's Warwickshire cheese, now, now forgotten. Stilton, which is very, still very well known. Mm -hmm. North Wiltshire, which you only occasionally come across these days. But that's an absolutely classic dairy area, North Wiltshire. And then the 19th century with industrial markets, urban markets, you've got uh, your Lancashire, Derbyshire, Leicestershire and Caerphilly. And you'll notice I didn't really mention cheddar there because it didn't become well known or popular really until well into the 19th century. So that's a long time after the uh, it was first mentioned in 1635. It was really a cheese for the aristocrats and uh, people, you know, the top end of society used to uh, um, they would make an order actually before the cheese was even made. And then the, the farmers would make it to order and then send it off to people in London. That was the main market, whereas cheese was being eaten in, in various other places, obviously, uh, throughout this period. But cheddar was mainly for the London market until the 19th century. Was it a question of a trickle down effect? I mean, I've been writing a lot about um, sugar, tea, coffee, chocolate. Was cheddar becoming uh, more popular because it was considered a... A posh thing and you know the, the upper middle classes want to get a little bit of it or did it just kind of sit there ticking away over the decades the, the latter i think um and then by the early 19th century uh the quality was being recognized more generally and there were a number of people involved in getting the word out as well so somebody had spotted there was something great about yes. cheddar and i guess that's right making it on mass so, so what what was it that was so great about cheddar that was catching people's eyes? I mean, there are, there are various ways in which you can understand British cheese, mm -hmm. uh, one of which is a kind of north-south divide. And uh, this is whether you heat your cheese when you're making it or you don't. Right. And uh, so there are hot cheeses and there are cold cheeses. And so the, the cold cheese is mainly in the north. Cheshire mm -hmm. cheese, as I mentioned, was the British cheese. We've known all over Europe, actually. It was exported in a, in a large way. It's a common pub name, Cheshire cheese. It is a common, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, uh, inns and pubs. Uh, so you travel around the country and you'd stop at the Cheshire cheese. Yes, there's one in uh, Manchester. <laughs> oh, there are several in Manchester, actually. I, I drive oh, okay. past one every, every time I go to Altrincham, which is where one of my daughters lives. Oh, okay. Go past the Cheshire cheese. So, yeah, and there were plenty of those in London as well, because in the 17th century, when, when cheese really took off uh, during the Civil Wars, it was exported in a large way from, from Cheshire and also to the, uh, to the Navy and to the army that was fighting in Ireland and in Scotland. So this was really the beginning of the, of the takeoff in a, in, a, in a very big way. But just to come back to Cheddar, 90, early 19th century, we're talking about a guy called Joseph Harding. As far as I know, he never actually made the cheese. It was either his mother-in-law, his wife, or his daughter right. who made the cheese. But he was the guy who got known for it. In the 1840s, 
he, he pops up in newspapers I've been reading. And then in the 1850s, he becomes extremely well known uh, throughout the country as a result of a rather curious link with Scotland. Okay. Scotland has always been very well organized with regard to cheese, but the quality of their cheese, which was called Dunlop. When I used to take students on, on field trips to the Isle of Arran donkeys years ago, we used to go to um, a creamery there and watch Dunlop being made. And it struck me then, watching the, the guys doing the process, it looked a bit like uh, cheddar. And I thought, hmm, interesting. I didn't make any further inquiries at that point until I realised that there was a link between Joseph Harding, this guy who, who made his um, cheese in, in Somerset in the 19th century, and Ayrshire, which, was, which is the home of Scottish cheese, by the way. And what, what happened was a delegation came down from the, uh, the Ayrshire Society to uh, Somerset in 1854, and they asked around, and it was recommended to them by uh, a, an agent in Bath that they go and talk to this guy, Joseph Hardy, who was known for putting on cheese-making demonstrations so the, the Scottish people, who'd never heard of him, actually, before they came to, to Somerset, uh, then came to the farm of his mother-in-law, and they, they looked at the process, made copious notes, and off they went back to Ayrshire and started making a cheddar-style Dunlop. The word spread not just from Ayrshire, but also other parts of southwest Scotland. So it became a, a, a popular way of making Scottish cheese. Having said that, I mean, just to take that story a little bit further, I've just written a paper about it, actually, for a Scottish journal. And Harding's got all the credit for this, you know, Harding, the father of Cheshire, uh, father of, the, of cheddar cheese and the improver of Dunlop and so on and so forth. But actually, my, my paper does pull the rug from, uh, rug from under him a little bit because um, he was quite heavily criticised, both in Somerset and in, in Scotland for the way he did his, his cheese making. And the, I would say the real father of cheddar in Scotland is a guy called Robert Drummond, who's a Canadian. Right, yes. What had happened in the meantime was that the cheddar method had gone over to North America. It had been adopted in, in New York State, following a guy called McAdam, who'd gone over in 1869 to uh, the Mohawk Valley in New York State. And then it had spread north into Canada. When Drummond came over, he, he became the head of the, the Scottish Institute of Cheesemaking. And he, he greatly improved cheese in Scotland. So the, the Dunlop you can buy in your, in your supermarket mm -hmm. is mainly the Drummond recipe rather than the recipe brought from Somerset. Just going back to uh, cheddar itself, what was it about the final product that was... Uh... I had all these people so in, enthused. It's if it's spreading to up to Scotland, over to yes. Canada, oh well, north whole of North America, I guess. What were I guess its properties that made it so attractive? I mentioned the uh, the heating first of all. This can be traced back to um, clotted cream. You know, you've had you've had those wonderful cream teas, no doubt, um, down in Devon and Cornwall. Indeed, uh, originally called clouted cream. Yes. Because the clouting process is heating and scalding the cream, uh, which preserves it and, and it can be kept for much longer than, than ordinary cream. Mm -hmm. so they had recognised that the heating was quite a useful process in, in various dairy products. And then it was used in the cheddar process, also used in making 
cheese as well, by the way. Okay. So this difference between the north and the south. So heating, first of all, scalding. Uh, but in addition to that, um, there are various other properties which were very significant in, in, making, in making cheddar. It used less labour, so that reduced the cost of, of making it. Mm-hmm. It was, it was mature more quickly than Cheshire, its, its main competitor. It brought in a higher price, which, you know, obviously was very popular with farmers. Mm-hmm. All, all of these characteristics were significant. Most importantly, it could be reproduced quite easily because it was, um, it was easy to understand. And there were sort of three or four different things you needed to, to remember when you were making it, as opposed to Cheshire, which was much more complicated. And the various other territories similarly were, were much more complicated than, than cheddar. I guess it was less ad hoc as cheese had been yeah. traditionally. So you could be con- more consistent. But was, was more that consistent. Uh, also, Harding introduced uh, greater cleanliness, uh, which was significant as well, because cheese uh, would, would go off quite, it would heave is the, is the word that was used. And um, obviously that wasn't popular with retailers. No. They'd buy it and, and they couldn't keep it for that long. That's another explanation for why cheese was so strong tasting as well in the early period. Our, our understanding is that it was very strong tasting, not just mature because it was kept for several years, but also because of the, the bugs that got into it. <laughs> so in the 19th century, then, cheese became bland because the cheddar process was used in factories, first of all in North America, and then North American cheese was imported into this country, and a lot of people gave up um, making cheese because the North American cheese was so cheap by comparison with the farmhouse cheese in, in this country. We imagine that that kind of food industry is a very modern thing you know where things being shipped yeah. halfway across the world uh, you know in huge amounts yeah. and made much cheaper than can make it at home but it's been going on for quite a long time since the 1850s in in north america then a bit later in this country because there was a certain amount of inertia in in cheese making over here but uh, farmhouse cheese making didn't really survive that well into the 20th century and certainly in england and uh, in wales and and scotland also <clears throat> maybe a little bit later but in England, it, it just couldn't compete. You know, it was it was too expensive to make. We mentioned women making cheese earlier on, and they wanted to do other things. It was a kind mm-hmm. of slavery, really. It was, a, you know, seven days a week, morning till night. It was really very difficult, uh, very laborious. Yeah, I always tried to make butter, and it was it took me about forty five seconds before it quickly became. <laughs> A nightmare. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, these, these women are really working, working hard. I mean, people yeah. might think, oh, it must be quite nice making some cheese. <laughs> it was a real slog, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So uh, the factory product also for for the for working people who were increasingly consuming cheese. You know, they they wanted the cheese to be cheap and and also to be of uh, reasonably good standard quality as well. So they were they were consuming more and more of imported cheese, not just America, but also uh, Canada, uh, New Zealand, Australia, various other countries as well. So mm-hmm. it, was, it was flooding into this country in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century. So British cheese making was was declining really. And you get uh, these sorts of um, well, this phenomenon, I suppose, with anything that's mass produced. You know, it has to appeal to as many people so the flavour can't be too strong. Yeah. It has to be cheap. So you, you very much get a, what I think of a, of a, of a dumbing down of the original oh, yeah. product, which yeah. is a shame. I mean, I understand it's an excellent source of calories. 
you know, fat and, and protein for the working classes. Obviously, yeah. that's very important, but there's a downside to that, I suppose, in that it loses its character. It's before your time, but I, I go back to the 1950s. So I remember my mother buying. Uh, actually, we didn't we didn't eat cheddar. We because I come from Liverpool, mm -hmm. um, and we ate Cheshire and we ate Lancashire cheese. But I remember it being incredibly bland. You know, it was factory made, mm -hmm. and um, we didn't recover the, the taste in cheese until relatively recently. And the yeah. government, the government played a part in that actually. I don't mean the present government, the government's going back for for generations because. Come the Second World War, with the U-boat threat, what do you do? You don't, you don't import food so much. You've got to make it from your own resources. Yeah. So what they said to cheesemakers was, sorry, but milk is going to be our priority. Churchill actually had said uh, when he became prime minister that school milk was going to be pretty much universal and there was going to be a lot of welfare milk as well for nursing mothers. So, you, you know, you can't argue with that, can you? Not really. So there's, there's going to be less milk available for cheese. And it was only summer milk as well. They weren't going to be making cheese in the winter, you know, to fit in with the, the natural rhythms of dairy. So and they said, uh, rather than having all these weird and wonderful varieties of cheese that you've made up until now, I'm very sorry, but it's just going to be factory-made cheese. It's going to be your Cheshire, your Cheddar, and uh, one or two others. And so... The farmhouse cheesemakers really went out of business in the Second World War. And it wasn't really until the later 1950s that they even considered making a, a comeback because cheese was on the ration until 1954. Even then, the cheesemaking industry was dominated by the milk marketing board, which was a farmer-based cooperative. So farmers, what are they interested in really? Well, it's mainly bulk milk rather than cheesemaking. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they... They didn't make it a priority. The Milk Marketing Board dragged on until the 1980s, but it was it was really swept away by a couple of things. One was the, the tidal wave of neoliberalism under Mrs. Thatcher. Mm -hmm. So the uh, a big big farmer-based cooperative didn't fit in with her idea of competition. <laughs> so bye-bye the Milk Marketing Board. But in addition to that, the European Union also didn't like big cooperatives. So they said, no, I'm sorry, you, you don't fit in with our competition rules, so you, you're going to have to get rid of it. And it didn't survive the cheese aspect of it anyway into the late 1980s. The MMB sold off their cheese-making wing, wholesaling wing, mm -hmm. in the in about 84, I think it was. And then they, um, they freed up farmhouse cheesemakers from their contract in the late 80s, because all cheese had been sold through the milk marketing board until then. It's maybe difficult for artisan cheesemakers to even contemplate that. Yes, we've gone so far. We've gone so far down the industrial road. There was so much infrastructure there that you could only deal in huge amounts. I guess we're talking about uh, lots of farms sending their milk and the milk has been pooled together, as it were, yeah. um, into centralised places for bottling and, and whatever. That's right. I, I used to... Um, with my family used to drive around the countryside in the 70s and it was still the churn by the by the gate to be picked up by the milk lorry mm -hmm. and then later on it was um these big tankers so it was yeah, it was large-scale stuff and and obviously small dairy farmers were going out of business they were being outcompeted by the big guys so everything everything was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and it, you know you're not talking artisan cheese really until the 1990s the idea was really coming back in, in the 1990s 
to begin with, reproducing old recipes that were, had been used by the farmhouse cheesemakers. There are a few of them still hanging on, but the idea spread that it would be good to use those recipes. Wasn't it um, Blue Vinny that was one of the first cheeses that were saved from extinction? Blue Vinny, yeah, which is a Dorset cheese, by the way, mm. skim, skim milk cheese, really disappeared. There were rumours around in the 80s that there had been some survivors you know, tucked away in the Dorset countryside, but mm, a bit of a myth, I think. Right, OK. People took up on the old recipes and started making it again, which let's hope was as, cl- as close as possible to the old cheeses. But don't forget, most cheeses are made with pasteurised milk. And obviously, if you heat the milk up, you're killing off much of the um, bacteria. And so that, that pasteurised cheese is not the same as raw milk cheese. There's just no, no doubt about it. If you eat raw milk cheese from France, it's, it's in a different category altogether. You know, it's just wonderful stuff. Yes, I was going to ask about that, actually, because, uh, yeah. you know, if, if we're going way back, I'm assuming you would make your cheese in some kind of wooden vessel. <laughs> and that wasn't, Absolutely. which wasn't, yeah. which was clean, but, you know, not scrubbed clean and sterilised. And it would harbour bacteria and yeast in there, which kind of help. Would soak into the wood, yes, absolutely right. Yeah, but as soon as you're pasteurising, are you you making hot curd cheese like cheddar? You've killed your preserving agent, essentially. I mean, it's those bacteria that are doing the preserving for us. Well, I suppose that and the salt. Uh, Well, it's it's not so much the preserving, it's the bacteria are making the flavours. Oh, yeah, Um, well, yeah, that too, of course, yes. (laughs) It's a really, really important, significant thing. So, I just need to go back a little bit because what is the reason for pasteurization? And in, in this country, in the 18th and 19th and early 20th centuries, you had a disease called bovine tuberculosis, mm-hmm. which affected, um, my calculation is hundreds of thousands of people died as a result of contracting bovine tuberculosis. Wow. You mentioned Liverpool, and that was one of the cities that suffered most from it because they were getting unpasteurized milk from, uh, from Cheshire and certain extent from, from Lancashire, unpasteurized. So raw milk, you're getting the, the bugs in, in the milk and people are dying from this horrific disease. It's not the lung disease, mm-hmm. which is spread through the air. It's the bovine version coming through milk and affecting your gut. So it's, it's actually horrendous in terms of the, the pain that people would have suffered and it was affecting babies and small children as well. Mm. Huge amount of infant mortality from this, this disease. So it, uh, it was a big political issue in the early 20th century. Some people didn't want pasteurization because they said it would ruin dairy products. Other people said, what are you talking about? We've got to prioritize human health. And there's, a, there's been a book written entitled War is Good for Babies and Young Children which was about the introduction of pasteurization during the Second World War. And then the 50s, and in Liverpool, it wasn't until 1960, milk was pretty universally pasteurized. So all around the country as well, actually, not just Liverpool. So milk was safe for the first time. And the big controversy we have about badges at the moment, Indeed, uh, you yes. might think, what, what has that got to do with cheese and milk? Well, actually, quite a lot, <laughs> mm. uh, because uh, the infected cattle, which are still there, uh, particularly down in the in the southwest, and the government's having a, a big problems of getting rid of that problem of infection. The cattle are passing it on to the badgers, and the badgers are giving it back to the cattle, and it's a kind of vicious circle. And we haven't solved it yet. If you want to avoid bovine tuberculosis in the milk, you need to pasteurize it. So my friends who eat who, who consume raw milk 
need to think about that and the various other bugs which are passed through raw milk. I'm not saying it's a big problem. It's a very, very small problem. And these days, uh, raw milk is produced on farms who are very well aware of the issues. And I, I think almost all of them have solved it. So it's a, it's a tiny, minuscule problem, but it's still there. So, but many of us, nevertheless, consume pasteurized products as a result of that, uh, unless yeah. we can be convinced. I did a, a tasting, um, probably know the food program on BBC Radio 4, mm -hmm. we did a tasting down there in London of raw milk as opposed to pasteurized milk. And the raw milk was just wonderful. The pasteurized milk, you could taste it, the... Flavors had been hindered as a result of the of the heating process. Just no yeah. doubt about it. Now, whenever I can, I try and get hold of a raw milk and raw milk products. It does it make a huge difference. It, it is obvious, yes. To yeah, so like some wine connoisseur, you know, telling you the difference of angle a <laughs> vineyard was at. It's it's a very obviously different taste. Yes, yes, yes. I, I live in Levensume, South Manchester. There's an excellent cheesemonger that comes to the uh, to to Levensume Market, uh, who sells a range of pasteurised, unpasteurised. Some are vegetarian, some use animal and rennet, and there's a huge variety. And he only trades in British cheeses. Okay, well, and Irish as well, maybe because um, we were in Dublin last week and mm -hmm. went to the um, the best cheesemonger in Dublin. And they had a fantastic variety of different Irish cheeses. They really opened my eyes to the product over there. Right. Historically, Irish cheese is not well known. In the Middle Ages, they had a big variety of soft cheeses. Then it disappeared during the English colonial period. Oh, it's always bloody English's fault. Well, <laughs> For you know, that's what happened in the, in the colonial period all <laughs> over the world. The British imported British goods, which then outcompeted local goods you know it's shocking really when you think back anyway irish no, cheese disappeared during the 19th century almost completely and only came back in the 20th century but now they've they've taken up the uh, artisan revolution good and their cheese is just as good as english cheese it's it's, it's fantastic right i'll have to seek seek those out how close do you think we got to completely losing our artisan cheese traditions very close yeah i mean it was preserved by some enthusiasts and by um I mean, farmer enthusiasts, but also by middlemen like Neil's Yard and, and various other... Well, Neil's Yard are excellent, yes. Not the only ones, but, uh, but Neil's Yard certainly played a very important part in it. So it's been a, a kind of knowledge-based revolution in a way, and by enthusiasts, bless their hearts, you know, it's not, not just cheese, it's also real bread, it's real ale, mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, and so... British food generally is making a comeback, isn't it? I think so. I, I gave a, I remember, it was a quite, a, quite a painful moment, actually. I gave a, a lecture in Paris to one of the, the many cheese organi um, food organisations over there in Paris. And I said, mm -hmm. uh, ladies and gentlemen, British food is making a comeback. And you can get fantastic food in restaurants and generally uh, in retailers now in, in England. And there was laughter, loud laughter in the room. <laughs> I'm not very good at telling jokes, but apparently this one was a very good joke for, for French people. <laughs> no doubt people who come over in, you know, in the 40s and 50s, I don't know, and, and experienced post-war British food, which wasn't great. I'm sorry to say. But then we had the Good Food Guide and, and British Food Made a very slow but steady comeback in the in the 50s and the 60s and then from the 70s and 80s onwards 
it's been much speedier. Do you think these cheeses that are being produced now can be compared to those older cheeses, or is it is, is no point comparing? No, them, I'm, 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 I'm making no effort of comparison in that way because you know the utensils you had available then, the conditions of cleanliness you had then, the scale of production you had then, uh, the quality of the ingredients, they were all different. So yeah. there's just no point, I don't think. Let's celebrate what we've got now. I don't mind the fact that it has been reinvented. It's, a, it's bringing back the principles, or what, at least the principles that you can bring back. You can't, you can't bring them all back because <laughs> of various uh, hygiene laws and things. But it's the spirit, isn't it? That's the important thing. And the final product is delicious. <laughs> what I want to experience is high-quality food of great variety. And, you know, I want there to be small companies making a living out of it and enjoying what they're doing rather than necessarily large-scale factory-based products, mm. which we, we all know are not going to be the same. Okay, we, we may consume some of them on a daily basis because it's convenient for us, but we also want to have high-quality foodstuffs made in a, on, a, on a small scale by people who really care what, about what they're doing. And let's celebrate that. Thank you very much, Peter. If you're interested in finding out more, I have left links to Peter's books in the show notes. There's also a couple of Easter eggs for subscribers in there. There's an extended chat about Joseph Harding and the cheddification of cheese, plus a discussion that I completely excised, which was about our favourite modern cheeses, including some of those extra mature, strong supermarket cheddars. What does Peter think about those? Mm-hmm. If you like your cheese, I've written a couple of blog posts to go with this episode. One, and it should be published right now, is called The Return of the British Cheese Industry. Now, I was sent a load of artisan cheeses from a company called Harvey and Brockless, and they sell just the kinds of cheeses that Peter and I were talking about in today's episode. They are a mail-order company, and they are selling some of the best UK cheeses around at the moment. I don't normally take food companies up on their offers, because usually their food is not really up my street. But in this case, I really couldn't say no, because this is the kind of stuff that I buy anyway. So just in case you think I'm doing kind of some kind of cynical cash-in, it is not the case. But the recipes are interesting. The one on that post is for a liquid toasted cheese based on a 19th century recipe. It is absolutely delicious, very cheesy, and it makes a small amount of, you know, quite expensive cheese go a long way. And then in a few days' time, I'll be publishing another recipe on the blog, and that's for blue cheese ice cream, which I guess is very 1920s, but I'm serving them up with some medieval-style poached pears. Really good recipe. Yeah, hopefully that'll be maybe five or six days' time if you're listening to this podcast the day it's come out. Oh, oh, before I forget, I appeared on a podcast uh, a week or so ago, and it's called Table Talk. It's a kind of a food history podcast, but it very much looks at the effects that history is having on the modern day. And it was hosted by Stephen Gates, who is a very well-known food writer, food scientist, and he does quite a lot of history. Uh, And we talked about the dark history of sugar, of course. That's not a surprise. Uh, I'll leave the link to that in the show notes. If you're interested in listening to me banging on about it, I'm going to be banging on about it a lot more over the next couple of weeks. Oh yeah, subscribers. There's two Easter eggs from today's episode. Go to BritishFoodHistory.com to discover them. Go to the Easter eggs tabs. Also, subscribers, I'm going to be putting my recipe for digestive biscuits on the blog, but just for subscribers. An excellent cheese accompaniment, of course, but you can have it with a brew. 
Expect that maybe in two weeks' time. I've got quite a few uh, plates to juggle. No, you don't juggle plates, do you? You spin plates and juggle balls. You know what I mean. Subscribers get access to all of my Easter eggs page, of course, with all the extra deleted scenes, the extra bits, and the other blog posts just for subscribers. If you go on my Easter eggs page, there's a handy little hyperlink to all the blog posts that are just for subscribers. But you can also just search for them typing the term premium content. In amongst those Easter eggs is a whole extra mini season that I did about forgotten foods. And the amount of stuff there is growing all the time. If you want to start a subscription, go to the support, the blog and podcast tab. The subscription is just £3 a month. And everything I receive will go back into making more content. Alternatively, you can just treat me to a one-off virtual coffee or pint. But I cannot emphasize enough that there's no pressure, of course, just by listening, liking, subscribing, and telling your friends you are really helping, especially if you leave comments and ratings. Every single one counts. So yeah, I'd be really grateful if you could do that. To keep tabs on what I'm doing, go to BritishFoodHistory.com or follow me on social media. I do tend to favor Twitter over Instagram as I'm a man who tends to forget to take photographs. Hey, if you've got any questions, comments, or queries about anything from this episode or any other episode in the podcast so far, please get in contact via email at neil at britishfoodhistory.com or Twitter at neilbuttery or Instagram at doctor, that's dr underscore neil underscore buttery. I shall see you next time. Have a good week.